watchers in the fourth dimension. When you're on your knees before my master, your defiance will change to screams for pity. The only pleasure left for you is death. And death is very far away. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And when you're on your knees before my master, your defiance will change to screams for pity. Welcome back. Today, as you may have guessed from Riley's introduction, we are talking about the crusade this time. Before we even get into anything, this one actually has a special point of interest to me in that uh, it's the first story which has a missing episode that came back during my actual memory as a fan. Episode one, The Lion, was missing until 1999. And I remember very clearly the, the news it had came back, eventually the VHS release of it. It originally had linking narrative from William Russell, who came back in character as Ian in a library to talk about his past in this story. And he summarized episodes two and four for the audience. So that was fantastic. Heading into behind the scenes, as we now do first, we have all four players being returning faces. This one was written by former story editor David Whitaker, who returns for the third of his eight Doctor Who scripts. Most recently, he did The Rescue, only three stories previously. In the director's seat, Dougie Camfield returns. This is his first full-length story, having previously directed part of Planet of Giants. Dudley Simpson returns as composer, having also previously worked on Planet of Giants. And finally, as designer, we have the return of Barry Newbury, who, of course, has been contributing since the very first story. He will continue to stay with us right through into the 1980s. And so with that, we move on to our short summary, which this time around is in the hands of Don, I believe. In this episode, Julie praises the costumes and historical accuracy... Riley laments the lack of a good monster, and Anthony relentlessly quotes Sandifer, while Don tries and fails to avoid saying Shakespearean. Wait, that's the wrong summary. Let me try that again. Uh, the TARDIS lands in the time of the Crusades, narrowly avoiding landing them in a plot where they have anything interesting to do. Barbara is immediately kidnapped, twice. Ian gets knighted, and the Doctor steals some clothes. With Julian Glover as Skigging Scaroth, I mean Richard, and Vicky as Bulb. <laughs> That was outstanding, Don. Thank you. <sighs> so, I don't know how we follow that. I guess we should just go ahead and, and get started with episode one, the previously missing The Lion. I don't know about any of you guys, but pretty much coming straight into this episode, there's just this really great music that happened. And I was just like, I'm already in. I, I, I'm sold. This is fantastic. They bring in the British crew, you know, like, you know, the, what they, then they start taking Shakespearean. And then before the TARDIS crew even comes in, I'm like, uh, okay, where's Errol Flynn? Uh, I'm already in it. I want to watch this. I'm good if the TARDIS crew never shows up because it just reminds me of those old black and white movies that I love so much. Sticking to Don's predictions, <laughs> I'm going to quote Sandifer, or at least reference Sandifer. Sandifer talks about <laughs> the the trope which Whitaker invented in The Rescue of starting in the world of the story and having the TARDIS crew enter it. As a result of that, the pseudo-Shakespearean tone of the story that Don is going to reference is strengthened because the story is all about this Shakespearean world being visited by the Doctor, not about vice versa. What I found really interesting was that the pacing 
in this it just it's i felt like i was watching getting settled and all of a sudden like okay now we have like a five minute fight scene i was like whoa okay we're it's like they really throw you into it and i'm i'm saying that's a good thing it really like you know pulls you in quickly instead of like having to take time to set things up and you do learn everything that you need need to know and also i did notice that ian for some reason straight out of the tardis looked a wee bit like hungover i thought he looked like he had just woken up yeah he had some alone time with barbara just let it go <laughs> speaking of that fight scene I, this is dougie canfield's first like proper fight scene in doctor who and it seemed to me when i was watching it that he really took his cues from waris hussein in an unearthly child because we saw the return of the fa- the fast motion yeah i mean it wasn't as as severe as it was in an unearthly child but i also felt like it wasn't really that needed i just found it interesting that they had so many like, close-up shots during it because it would be like, all right, fight, fight, fight. And then it was like a close up of their face and then fight some more, fight some more close up of face. And it just that I thought was more jarring than just having it be fast paced. That may have been in, done as a means of like trying to introduce the characters to us through mm. the action scene. And I must say, I mean, I found those first few scenes a little bit confusing as to who was attacking who and who was getting the killing blow. I actually had to rewind to make sure that Ian didn't kill anyone. So I I must say, I did love how we get pretty much straight into the action with this one. It gives it this kind of pacey feel to it that, and I'm I'm sorry to criticize it, but coming off the back of the web planet, it feels like we haven't really seen that in a while. Not at this pace for a four-parter to like jump in like this. I, I can't remember. I was just really excited that the doctor knew where we were because he was like, oh man, King Richard. I know about this. I know where we're at. And I was just like, yay, he he finally knows again. Like he's only known like one or two things. So <laughs> it's nice to to show him knowing more about history throughout the universe. So, yeah, I thought it was nice. Speaking of which, we see all these characters. We see Sir William Dupreux. He does this wonderful trick which I believe was actually based on on something that actually happened in history, which I like a lot. But as we hear all this dialogue, I mean, all I could think, and if if anyone's listening long-term and heard the bonus episode of the panel that we did with Louis Robinson on early British sci-fi, he talks about how much the BBC loved to make Cod Shakespeare and Dickens. Well, this is Cod Shakespeare just not by Shakespeare. And the dialogue just reinforces that time and time again in this. And that's in it from the beginning through to the end. That was all I saw when I heard Sir William talking. And it gets even worse when we actually meet Richard. And when we do meet Richard, it's someone that everyone has to love, Julian Glover. I don't think we're necessarily supposed to really necessarily like the character very much. But he does a very good job. You, You speak about not having to like King Richard or not having being meant to like him what's tatwood and lawrence miles they talk about how the king richard at time was being taught in school as being like this cuddly friendly monarch and he wasn't and i studied crusading in the high middle ages at college and i knew from tertiary education that he wasn't what we were taught at school 
they're teaching in this story something that's a bit closer to the reality in terms of his personality and his temper, etc. It also just makes sense. I kind of always hate it when they show these monarchs being, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily soft, but like trying to make them likable. I'm like, they're trying to accomplish something. They're tr- they have this goal in mind. And in order to do that, that doesn't work. So I just realistically, it just made sense to me. I'm like, yeah, he's harsh, but that's that's what you would have to do in order to be where you're at. In- incidentally, just talking about Julian Glover, Don mentioned he'll come back and uh, to Doctor Who as Scaroth in season 17, City of Death. But outside of this, he's been in the Avengers, Blake 7, The Empire Strikes Back, Space 1999. One of our Indiana Jones connections, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones. And when he came to this, he had literally just come off doing a long run on the stage in some Shakespeare plays. So mm-hmm. when we see him, he he effortlessly slips his dialogue into iambic pentameter. Oh, that's beautiful. King Richard has always been, in pop culture, a king, or or a character that's always been portrayed in this very good light. Always. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, like, uh, I believe there was a... (laughs) I think of the Disney film Robin Hood, the animated one. King Richard is portrayed as this, like, the entire time while everyone's suffering from Prince John, any Robin Hood movie does this. Everyone's suffering under Prince John until the entire, nothing can, the ending cannot be happy. The, the resolution of the conflict cannot occur. until King Richard comes. It's almost like a second coming of Christ almost in some of these in pop cultural depictions. And that's definitely not what we see in this character. So I was going to move forward with the doctor in this episode because I loved it. Because first, just the idea that the doctor was like, okay, I need to go get clothes for all of us because we need to fit in. And I was like, finally, something that just inherently should be the thing that you think of is, oh, well, we need we should wear clothing of the time period. So it was just nice to kind of have that actually spelled out at least once. And then, obviously, when the Doctor actually steals the clothes. Oh my gosh, so with that scene, we, we get the return of the comedy merchant. I love that trope. <laughs> when he's doing it, the Doctor very clearly breaks the fourth wall in a very Shakespearean way. When he turns to the camera and basically says, well, if they've been stolen before, they can be stolen again. And it's almost <laughs> like those little asides you see in a Shakespeare play, which mm. I thought was wonderful. And I love that Vicky just rolls with it. She's like, okay, I'll be over here, you be in there, and just hand me all the stuff. All right, I'm ready. And I'm just like, wow, Vicky's just does whatever the doctor does. It's great. And it's an interesting contrast compared to how Susan was, because there, I believe there were times where Susan would scold the doctor for doing certain things. But Vicky is an enabler. <laughs> I, I love Vicky so much. Oh, she's great, and I I, I love her um, the outfit they uh, put her in to uh, you know dress her up as a boy. Uh, I had just so many memories of Peter Pan looking at her little outfit, you know, <laughs> and with her you know with her face. Just it it just hit that. And if you think about it, that's a perfect mirror of Shakespeare as well. You think back to Shakespearean times when they would have had all the female characters being played by men in drag, 
they've taken Vicky, who is a woman, and putting her in drag as a man. So there's that kind of mirror effect. I think that's really, really smart and really well done. And let's just say that Vicky's hat is amazing. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> and and I think um, later on when it, it is revealed, I can't remember the character. I think it's maybe just one of the aides to the king. But he makes some sort of passing comment in regards to Vicky having been dressed as a boy. And I could not help but feel like that was kind of like a slight kind of old people talking about youth culture. Like, what are they, what do they think of next? Kind of things. And I think that's the Lord Chamberlain who says that, who, who makes a comment of girls dressing as boys, whatever next, which, you know, in 2019 is slightly funnier. I wanted to touch briefly before we wrap up this episode on the other subplot with Barbara and William meeting Ella Keir and Saladin. Because I, I feel that's really, really important to the plot. There's this whole plot around Saladin, uh, Safadin, and Joanna, and William Dupre pretending to be Richard convinces Barbara to be Joanna. A lot of the critics talk about how Ella Keir is just a bastard, period. Like, he has no reason to be as much of an asshole as he is through the entire story. But I think this is really is all about his pride at this point. So he feels like he's been made a fool of. So as a result, he's just this bitter asshole for the rest of the story. And he wants his revenge for being made to look stupid in front of the Sultan. And that starts here. I think that makes sense. That's one of the most important things, especially of that time period. A lot of men of that kind of rank, I, they were made a fool of. I, they would be upset. So it makes sense to me. All right, with that, let's move into episode two, The Night of Jaffa. So as we move into the missing stories, I know we had the option of either doing the reconstruction or the narrated audio. Did anyone do the narrated audio? I listened to a bit of it. Not for this episode. I did it for the other episode. Did any of you notice on, on the recon on this one how the sound quality on the opening sequence was a little off compared to what we used to? Sound quality, I found, for both of the reconstructions varied greatly. It just seemed like it varied from from scene to scene. Almost. Yeah, it, it wasn't yeah. good. I mean, part of that's due to the quality of, of how they were recorded. But the actual title sequence on The Night of Jaffa, this was how all black and white Doctor Who sounded in the 1990s, watching on VHS. It felt so nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> so... As we hear Richard talking, the rest of the characters talk him into treating this as a propaganda victory. <laughs> Which I love. I mean, you think about it, that's, that's like the modern concept of spin. And it works so well. And it's like, this is the kind of stuff that we heard 20 years ago with, well, 15 years ago with Tony Blair and George W. Bush. And yet we're hearing it being talked about here in 1965. On top of that, we have everyone slipping into Shakespearean-type dialogue to the point where even the Doctor is saying words like methinks, which <laughs> I've never heard anyone say outside of a Shakespeare play. So yes, I really enjoyed, you know, it was, it was a trick, you know, kind of the Doctor and Ian doing their thing of tricking Richard into... Because it, was, it wasn't just about convincing him of, of everything, but it was just a good a messenger over there which was the big one for me the big thing was 
when they revealed the real Joanna because the still that they have of Joanna and Richard is just I thought it was an interesting choice of a still I I think I saw something Anthony that you said that there was kind of like a subplot that was taken out yeah Mm-hmm. regarding Richard and Joanna. And when I saw that like scene from the reconstruction, I was like, well, they took most of it out, but it kind of looked like with the way that she was looking at him, I was like, girl, that's your brother. Yeah, it's it's not overt in the script, but it's there the way they're playing it. It apparently was overt in the original script and uh, Hartnell had such a hissy fit over it, they took it out. I mean, I agree. <laughs> I... It's, I think I'm probably a little jaded from Game of Thrones that I'm just like, can we not do this brother sister thing? Like, I'm not for that. And that Doctor Who is not a place that needs that. Yeah, I think the difference is here, though, this is real history. And it was heavily rumored that Richard and Joanna were doing things that maybe they shouldn't have been doing. So, you know, we have that. Then we get to that point where they're actually actively trying to pass Vicky off as a boy. Uh, Took me a second to really get that because they should have done something more with her face or hair or something because I was like, she's not looking too much like a boy right there. No, it really (laughs) isn't. And they try they try to, like, you know, sell it a little more of this thing. Her voice is not broken yet, but. One thing we do get, we get Ian in another ridiculous costume. Yes! (laughs) And I feel so robbed at this episode. I mean, at least we have a couple stills, but to see him uncomfortably trying to get into that outfit, it's actually, what's kind of wonderful about that is how at first you're led to believe like, okay, here we go, getting Ian into another ridiculous outfit, make him look like a fool, but he gets knighted. I mean, it's actually kind of like a turnaround of like something where we were going to mock him for. And now it's all of a sudden like, well, he's been knighted now. That's actually very kind of wholesome. That's wonderful for two reasons. Firstly, is a lot of viewers who were slightly older would be familiar with William Russell in the late 50s being Sir Lancelot in a TV show. So this isn't the first time he's played a character who's a knight. And secondly, obviously, if you're going to be the king's emissary to to the sultan, you need to have some kind of status. So it makes sense from a narrative perspective as well. Speaking of dress up, Barbara's hair looking good. (laughs) She was looking very nice. And you get to see it in Wheel of Fortune the next episode. But and yet you made no comment about Barbara and bondage during the first episode. I am shocked. (laughs) (laughs) But let's talk about the meat of this episode. Richard is going to sell off his sister. And the doctor seemed okay with it. So how many times have we had arranged marriage in historical stories now? Because we've had it in Marco Polo. We've had it in the Aztecs. I don't think we had it in the Reign of Terror, although we did have the jailer hitting on Barbara quite egregiously. What I found so interesting here is when she actually finds out about it which i think is not until the next episode but when she does she's not mad about the arranged marriage she's mad that she's going to be married off to an infidel uh joanna's like just telling off scene was my favorite scene of the entire serial i thought the performance the the wrath the passion behind it maybe it's because i just disliked the character of richard that it was just good to see him just like just saying all this to his face 
felt very satisfying. I mean, I was going to start going to what happened with, with Barbara. And Luigi. Because, oh, Luigi. Oh, I love Luigi. Damn Venetians. <laughs> He's great and terrible at what he does. He like got his job done, but he, he did it very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> the whole scene where he just barefaced lies to Saladin, that's just dumb. Yes. <laughs> That's really dumb, and he's found out incredibly quickly because it's so dumb. I have a feeling that the character, uh, the actor, would have done a lot of good physical acting with him because he just, I don't know, he, he seems like he's a comic villain. Um, am I reading that wrong? No, I think you're right. I definitely got that vibe. So it was great, though, because Barbara gets kidnapped because of what Luigi does, and she escapes by herself, which is great. Love when Barbara can get her way out of out of messes that she gets into. What I also found interesting is when they pan over, they pan back to like Ian and I believe William, and they're talking about you know it's like well maybe she did leave with this guy like we don't know and Ian is absolutely like absolutely she would not she is not in love with this guy uh please she's in love with me. So. <laughs> Speaking of that, Ella Keir. Not only does he have this comedy scar, but he wants to throw Barbara into his harem. <sighs> Again, we have another character who wants to have sex with Barbara. We've had the, the, the dude in The Keys of Marinus, we had the jailer in The Reign of Terror, we had Nero, and now we've got Ella Keir. Don't forget the Thal in the Daleks. Oh yeah, but he wasn't weird about it. He was kind of sweet. <laughs> <laughs> he was at least trying to be romantic and woo her. Still wanted her. All right, I'll rephrase. We have the fourth creeper on Barbara. <laughs> there we go. Typical. That's three historicals in a row now. Which also brings us to that attempted escape that she does at the very end of the episode. I know we get the very last part of it where she's kind of rescued by Haroon-ish, but I really wish we could see more of that. That, that I think yeah. this was the part of the episode for me that I sat there thinking, I really wish I could see this. Yeah, it was very difficult to follow because there wasn't a lot of dialogue, especially towards the end when she's trying to escape. And she's just like hiding around corners and trying to escape this guard. And they just have the words written at the bottom. but you, And you hear like kind of panting or like, you know, hushed things. But... It's, it's just hard when you don't have the dialogue. I have a feeling it, I bet it probably would have been kind of kind of nice, just a little ducking behind dark corners, you know, but nope. The narrated audio reconstruction actually did a pretty good job of it, better than the, than the other one. Well, that's good to know. He could describe some of the action. You actually got some of the suspense from it, rather than just the same still of her in that street repeated over and over. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I wanted to touch on was the doctor being confronted over his thievery. After all that giggling, someone comes up to him and is like, yo, doc, you stole from me. And the Chamberlain's like, you stole from me? Wait, this, this is my stuff. So it all comes to a head and the doctor just does what he's been doing best and just giggles his way through it. <laughs> calls, calls the merchant a blockhead. We have just come so far from that character we met at the very beginning of the show. I love this version of the first Doctor that we've been seeing for the last few episodes. It gives me warm and fuzzies. I guess that moves us on to episode three, The Wheel of Fortune. I loved how this started out. One parallel I drew was 
we don't have a white knight coming to Barbara's rescue. Instead, we have a Saracen. And I just thought that was such a nice little twist. This is not about Crusaders versus Saracens. This is not about Muslims v. Christians. This is about good people versus bad people, and they're both on each side. And I thought that's a great message, and I think that's even more poignant in 2019 than it was in 1965. I think one big thing we get very early on is that final realization that Vicky is not Victor. That came as such a shock. What? But the whole, like, I was going to have her strutting around like a peacock. <laughs> Why? I just found that line very entertaining. And when the Chamberlain is like, is nothing understandable these days? I mean, that's exactly how I think, you know, someone like my father, who, I, as I've said in a previous podcast, is in his 70s, would react to this. Joanna, you know, figuring out, and then she's like, well, Vicky must be a girl. Like, sorry, we're not, we're not playing this game. I also liked what Joanna had to say about the doctor because she said something along the lines of there is something new yet something old to him as well. And I was just like, that's pretty, pretty accurate to what the doctor's supposed to be, I think. Yeah. Yet older than the sky itself. It's just another notch on the scorecard for Joanna as the best character uh, introduced in this episode all around. She's fantastic. And of course, she is played by the absolutely fantastic Jean Marsh. This is the first of three characters she'll play in Doctor Who between now and, and the very final season of Classic Who. She's fantastic every time she shows up, and I think she absolutely steals the show here. Her big scene of where she just tells off Richard is, that was the most amazing part of the entire serial. Yeah. One other thing about that whole scene, too, though, is that, again, it was showing the relationship between Vicky and the Doctor, and I was just, I, I had to sit back and think, like, I hate that Susan couldn't have that. I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that I found very striking in this episode. Um, the scene with the daughter and Vicky, where I, is she sitting on his lap and he kind of like, you know, poops her nose? I mean, at that yeah. point, I was like, he's more affectionate and almost treating her like a daughter and more familiar, a familiar, familial with her than he was ever with Susan. Yeah. I noticed that too, and it seemed to me that there was really no need for it to have been that way, because if they can write Vicky this way, they could have done the same thing for, for Susan. They just chose not to. I think part of the problem is by the time they figured out what they wanted to do with a female teenager, it was too late with Susan. They'd already taken her far too far down the wrong path, and it's very difficult to course correct, so it's much easier just to bring in a different character and build that relationship. Of course, Vicky coming straight after Susan, it enables her to be the surrogate grandchild without actually being the blood relation. We also have the other big plot, which is Barbara being harbored by Haroon and her journey back into the hands of Elakir's palace, if not Elakir himself. I struggled with this plot line. I'm not going to lie. I feel like they could have managed it in a different way. Because I, I like the idea of Barbara being separate, partially, that just drives plot, because if they were all together, they just would have gotten back on the TARDIS and left. It just took some weird turns, and El Akir was, was so bad that I think they just took him a little bit too far. Yeah. It's like, I get that he would be upset and his pride was hurt, and I think that that part is fair, but... 
the extent, the, the killing all these people and then hearing what had happened to that, to, you know, the family and him setting fires. And I'm just like, buddy. I feel like I'm the Riley of this episode. This was actually the only plot I really enjoyed. <laughs> because for most of them, I'm like, okay, yeah, you're playing Shakespeare. Oh my God, get on with it. I just didn't care. <laughs> this guy, Haroon, he had a reason for being and that was because that Elakir wasn't just oh my pride was hurt by Barbara he's he's always a jackass and the whole Barbara yeah. thing is just exemplary of that he is a a villain he's someone that has power and enjoys inflicting power and pain on other people he also gets some of the best lines in the serial oh yes. I would have much preferred this entire thing if it had been focused more on this Interesting. Yes, Don. Or maybe if it had just more of a focus. Yeah, you know, because you've got. It, it seems like it's. It seems like it's there just to, you know, spend time and just give you a diversion. It's. It doesn't really feel as. It doesn't. It doesn't feel as important to the overall plot as it could have. Well, been. none of this really felt important to the plot. For our main characters, they're not really doing anything. The doctor's giggling about court and sealing clothes. Vicky's pretending to be a boy. Ian, he becomes a knight and then gets strapped down the desert and doesn't accomplish a whole lot. They're not our main characters. It's just all this political intrigue and it's the, hey, let's pretend to be Shakespeare story. And Don, you're going to love this because this is where I, I bring up our favorite person again. Again. Yes, again. Um, but Sandiford talks about this and how the four episodes really narratively have bugger all to do with each other. <laughs> it just ambles from point to point and doesn't give a huge amount for our TARDIS crew to do other than just be there. Like, they don't have an actual story in this. They just fall into event after event and event. And I think that's eventually what scuppers the pure historical. Is it's very difficult to fit our heroes into that and actually give them something interesting because history has to follow the course that we know, at least until 2008 and the next Doctor, but we'll get there in like seven years' time. But that's the constant problem, and I kind of see what you mean, Don. Elakir is the only interesting person here because he's actually a bastard. He's a jerk, but he's doing something. Yeah, bastard. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, because... You're right. I mean, everything feels kind of stale. I mean, what's our main conflict? It's a negotiation between Richard and Saladin. Would it have made any difference if our characters had not shown up at all? No. Then what's no. the point? Yeah. I guess I'll come back to this at the end when I do my roundup, but I feel like David Whitaker has written what is a very, very good script. But not a good Doctor Exactly. Who's... Yeah. To Julie's point at the beginning, Julie, you said you would have been very happy if the TARDIS crew had never shown up and this had just been a an Errol Flynn yeah. black and white adventure. Yes. Drawing everything together, that's what this should have been. So. Well, I, I think that goes back to what you were saying with Sandiford, of like, you know, that is that is the difficulty of historical scripts. Maybe Whitaker was trying to get away from the TARDIS crew being in a situation where they are interfering with time, knowing full well those events cannot be changed or that they can't change them. Well, you, you just don't get them involved in in big events that you know happen they can be around at that time and give them something going on yeah 
Well, see, or maybe, yeah. maybe give them something to do Dude. that isn't necessarily with a historical person. Maybe like uh, someone under the person, and then make a story off of that. I would be totally. That would be fine. Well, I would I'd totally take that. I find that interesting too, though, because so just to kind of look at that a little bit, I watch the show Outlander, and they deal with historical figures in predominantly the second season. They deal with the Bonnie Prince Charles, and they have the main cast in interacting directly with that famous character but they give them something to do it does turn out that there was nothing that they could do to change actual history but there's so much going on and how it affected them was more important than changing history and so if there was somehow like the TARDIS crew like other than just like okay I got kidnapped for a little bit if it actually like changed them as as individuals then I think it works in, in that kind of situation, but it just is not done here. So I think what's what's interesting with this one is the next time we see the show come back to a historical setting, which will be with Dennis Spooner writing it, rather than drop them in something like this, they add that sci-fi element to a historical for the first time and have the TARDIS crew having to stop someone else from altering history. And I think that's a result of Dennis Spooner and the production team at this time looking at stories like this and th thinking, maybe this doesn't work from a narrative perspective with our four main characters. Maybe we can do something else and make it more interesting. I do want to say, Don briefly uh, hinted at, you know, El Akira having some of the best lines. And I actually think my favorite was pretty much at the end. And it was the only pleasure left for you is death. And death is very far away. Oh, that yeah. was such a good line. <laughs> oh, my. Like, that is terrifying. Because if you, you know, it's like, oh, it's death. But you're saying it's so far away. Like, that means that there's years that I have to deal with this. It's a, And it's just that's mm -mm, no. And don't forget, one of the, uh, his henchmen uh, specifically tells Barbara, and you do not know El Akir. <laughs> it's just, just great intimidation, like great build-up to that character. That brings us neatly into episode four, The Warlords, which is also missing. So we're back into reconstructions and narrated audio and all that good stuff. The one thing that I immediately noticed is how wonderfully sassy Barbara is, even when Elakir has captured her and is basically threatening her life and everything she holds dear. Is there no end to how fantastic this woman is? I mean, think about the experiences she's had so far. Some, like, you know, second-rate, like, you know, lieutenant in, hist in, in history is probably nothing for her. That's fair. She, I mean, she did have to fend off Nero, so... Who the hell is Elakir? <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing, too, because those are two very different things. Like, one is trying to have sex with you pretty much solely. That's his only goal with Nero. Versus Elakir, who is, you know, actually wanting to cause pain and, you know, basically torture you for a while. Whether that's actually physical or mental, it's a tough thing. Yeah. You know, for a villainous character like that, when you get enough build-up, you always want to have kind of a very satisfying victory over them. But I would love to have seen Barbara, you know, having like a sassy attitude, like you were saying, with Elakir. And then Elakir makes some sort of line of, you, you know, your suffering will be great and 
eventually I will achieve this power, blah, 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 blah. And then everyone, history will know the name Ella Kier. And she just looks at him and says, no, they won't. <laughs> yeah. That's never going to happen. Oh. <laughs> so obviously she escapes and she makes her way into the harem. And Ella Kier shows up and offers the ruby ring to try and get them to betray her. So we, we have a story in the Middle East. We have Barbara hiding out with a precious material to betray her. Is anyone else seeing this parallel? Who's going to be Judas? <laughs> or was that just me? I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I guess. But then when, when, when that woman, Fatima, does betray Barbara, everyone else ostracizes her. And I would love to see how that scene played out. but. I mean, she does turn herself into a Judas. Everyone hates her for it. It's a pretty classic thing is I need I need these people to do something that I want. So I'm going to offer them something in order to get that. Yes, it's a Judas thing, but it's also just a, a trope. So that's that's fair. I agree, but I wouldn't I'd be totally down for some gospel of Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Oh. I'd read the hell out of that. I'm thinking. I'm thinking musical. I'm thinking Broadway. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> as long as long as one of the songs uh, in, in the soundtrack is about mowing down Daleks in a in a pickup truck, then I, I'd be right with you. And Barbara said, "Yay! The Lord does insist that you all learn backcombing." So let's go to Barbara's lover boy, Sir Ian of Jaffa. And his reunion with the Zarbi. Almost. <laughs> so fun fact on that, that entire scene, in the televised version, there is a shot of ants crawling over his hand. And William Russell was so terrified of ants, not because of the web planet, although that was a terrifying experience, <laughs> but because of his military service in the Far East, that he refused to do it. So the hand that was seen was actually uh, Dougie Canfield's production assistant rather than William Russell's. Yeah, after the web planet, it would have been wonderful if, if Ian would have just like, you know, sat there and once it realized what happened to him, what was going to happen to him, he said, ants, why did it have to be ants? <laughs> he knows what huge muscular legs they have. <laughs> Speaking of uh, of that little reference, Riley, of course, Ibrahim uh, is played by Tut Lemkov, who had been in Marco Polo and will go on to be in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you go. And his so... character is such a Raiders of the Lost Ark character. Yeah. I love that character. Like, I like his the amount of, like, joy and, and, and grief that it brings <laughs> to, 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 to kneeling down Ian in the sand. And he has this little like tune that he hums. It's I just uh, there's something wonderful, the contrast of something so absolutely terrible and disturbing with someone doing it so gleefully. It's such a wonderful contrast. And, and the whole thing is with Ibrahim is ridiculous because after initially tying Ian down and torturing him for gold, Ian manages to escape. And then I don't know where this came from, but suddenly, and maybe something got lost in the reconstruction, he becomes friends with him and says things like, you are truly my brother. 
Instant sidekick. <laughs> There's zero character development here. Where did this even come from? And he, after all that, you know, getting, you know, nailed down, you know, in hopes of gold, what does he do? He gives them gold in the end. Yep. Ibrahim has learned nothing. He is like, after they've left, he's continuing to just put people down in the desert, nail them down, just random people in hopes of getting more gold. As strategies go, I've seen better. <laughs> but he was still very, very entertaining. The other thing with this episode is, so we've seen Elakir as the bad guy on the Saracen side, but I think it's really in this episode where we start seeing the bad guy on the Crusader's side in terms of Lester. We find out that it was Lester who told Joanna about the king's plans for her to marry Safadin. Lester goes on and accuses Vicky of being a witch, and he's the one that calls the Doctor and his friends dangerous enemies. And at the end, they're not running from Elec here, they're running from Lester. First off, how do you think Vicky is a witch? <laughs> like, that just doesn't make any sense. And I don't know what his motives are. That's because it just came out of nowhere. It seemed like an excuse to, oh, we've got to have them be in a hurry to get back to the TARDIS. Like, I found it interesting because, like, in a lot of previous episodes, I kind of brought this up. There was always, like, a character who said, oh, well, we it's like, we just met you. We can't trust you, so let's kill them. And this one didn't do that, but it's even worse. Because instead of, like, being the immediate, oh, well, we don't know you, we don't trust you, it's, all right, you've been here for four episodes, and you know what? Finally, I've decided that you guys are terrible and I want to kill you now. It, it doesn't make sense. I think part of the problem with this is previous serious historicals we've seen have been seven or six parts long. This one's four, so suddenly we've taken all of that stuff that we would have far longer to actually see play out, and condensed it. It's just not done that I, I well I couldn't have times. taken this if they had stretched it out another two episodes. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to see some interesting ratings when we get there. Um, I'd like to point out that, you know, Lester, where he has that kind of argument with the Doctor, he has the best meathead statement against a smart person in a fight I've ever heard. You would expect him to say something like, well, I'll just beat your ass, smart guy. In his way, though, his dialogue is, and a fool can match a coward any day. I was like, there, that's, that's a much better way of saying that. <laughs> it's, it's the Shakespearean way. Exactly. The Lester character is horribly rushed, and only I would not be surprised if he was only put in there in order, like you said, to just encourage them to get on the TARDIS in the fourth episode. I like the idea of trying to show that there are good people and bad people on both sides of the religious divide. But Ella Keir is established from episode one as being awful. And Lester suddenly comes out of nowhere to be the worst. And I think this would have been much better if you'd had them both on each side from the very beginning, just yeah. being terrible, terrible people and had that kind of simmering tension where our regular characters, no matter where they went, they had enemies who were seeking to undermine their existence. Yeah, that would probably work better. But, yeah. but I think the resolution made sense. Ian comes in. Since he had been knighted, he can pull that card and say, Hey, look, I'm Sir Ian. So let me just let him 
go outside and see Jaffa one last time. Oh yeah, sure, you're a knight. Obviously, I'm going to believe you. And they sneak away on the TARDIS. Yep. And I think that is a... How we got there might not have made sense, but I think how they resolved that makes sense. There are two other things I wanted to touch on. Firstly, there was the Doctor's conversation with Richard where he assures him that he will see Jerusalem. I love that entire conversation. Mm. And when we have that dialogue between the Doctor and Vicky, where he tells her that, I mean, technically I wasn't lying. He will see Jerusalem. He just won't get to go there. It's almost, to me, that read like, honestly, like a Shakespearean tragedy. You kind of know how this is going to play out. You know Richard doesn't hold Jerusalem. You know that the Saracens take it back and... I really, really liked that entire little scene. I felt that was very, very well done. I agree. Yeah. Oh, it was like a little bit of bittersweetness there. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the other thing was Haroon finally getting his vengeance on Elakir and getting his daughter back, which was a nice little happy ending for Haroon. I, I thought that was very touching, although his daughter having been in the harem, I think in, in real life might not have been welcomed back into society so readily but i loved how it sh- how it all turned out so does ian kill anyone no no okay no his only his only chance of killing someone was in the first episode and as you stated earlier he does not kill that person you went back and watched he did not camp count any cases for maybe luigi luigi i was gonna go with the merchant oh yeah that's better than luigi so we get two we get luigi and the merchant Let's, let, let's go for both. Is the merchant... Yes, yes, the merchant. And the Barbara murder count? None. None? No. no. The Vicky pet name count. We She doesn't encounter any alien creatures this time, so zilch. No pets. All right. <laughs> let's vote. Don, you get to start this week. Do I? D- despite <laughs> my comments, I didn't completely hate it. I will admit that during the reconstruction of episode two, I was supremely bored. Uh, three and four picked up the pace a bit and actually introduced some plot elements I cared about. I'm trying to say good things here. There are some really good lines in here. And so I must compliment their Shakespearean writing in places. The bad guy was good, but... It, it just seemed like an excuse to put on a certain type of episode and the main characters had nothing to do. So in, in parts it was well executed, but I just didn't think it was that good of an idea. I, I have to give it five out, five out of ten. I don't care enough to think of anything funnies. <laughs> Ouch. No, five doesn't mean it was bad. It was just there. Yeah. That's, so that's your description. That's, that's basically your description of the episode. This episode, it's just there. half of it exists. It's just there. <laughs> <laughs> out, of, out of all the Doctor Who episodes, this yes, one of this was the one that I watched this week. So Don gives this two out of four missing episodes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Julie, over to you. So there's a lot of good and there's some not so good. The acting is superb, especially with, you know, uh, you know, this thing, Richard and Joanna, I think, really stu- stood out, given their track record. That makes sense. I love the Shakespearean feel. And then, as I said before, I loved, like, from the very beginning, I was like, okay, I could watch this, whether or not the TARDIS crew was in it, which could be a bad thing, since this is about Doctor Who. 
The music was great. Costumes, fantastic. We all talked about, you know, how Vicky looked and all of that. That was fantastic. The writing, there's great lines. There's great, you know, getting into that iambic pentameter. Fantastic. Again, really just where we struggle a little bit is the plot. Like, stuff coming out of nowhere and the fact that nothing actually really happened. But I'm still going to give it 8 out of 10 Vicky hats because I still think that enough happened and enough was good. All right. Riley, over to you, sir. I think Julie and Don both make very good points, and they kind of you know reflect my opinions in a lot of ways. But I, I feel like for some reason there's just so many little bits of this serial that I really enjoyed. I, is, it, is it Julian Glover? Was it Gene Marsh? Was it, like Julie said, the costume in, costumes, the music, the, the dialogue, pacing, the fact that it's an episode that was four episodes? I feel like this story that we had here could have easily have been drug out to six or seven based on how Dr. Hugh had has worked before. I enjoy myself with this, and I usually don't really I have a harder grade for historical uh, historical episodes, but I, I really enjoyed this one. So I will give this one seven and a half ants chewing on Ian out of ten. I don't understand. We actually pretty much agree, and this doesn't make sense. From my perspective, I mean, Riley, you've just given us a really good summary, in my opinion, and, and said a lot of what I want to say. I'm, I can't deny that this is an absurdly well-scripted story. The, the point I made earlier on, they basically dropped the TARDIS crew into another story, and they just have to kind of roll with the punches, is accurate, but... Equally, the casting's phenomenal, costumes are phenomenal. It does get a few negative points for the horrendous use of brown face throughout it, in my book. The music's really good. Terence, uh, not Terence Dudley, Dudley Simpson even, did a wonderful job here, much better than he did on Planet of Giants, I think. And, of course, we return to a narrative structure that we had in the Romans, where you have the Doctor and Vicky hanging out the whole time while... Barbara and Ian get split up and reunited in the final episode, which is something I enjoyed on the Romans. For me, this one is is has a lot of positive points, but equally it drags at times and it just doesn't entirely work as a Doctor Who script. So with that, this one for me and Riley pretty much stole the measurements I wanted to use. <laughs> but I'm going to use the one I was going to originally use anyway. So this one gets seven trails of ants chasing honey out of ten. With that, I think we're out of time this week. So we will be back next time around to talk about the Space Museum. So thank you very much for joining us. And we look forward to talking next time around. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Barbara in Bondage, was recorded on Wednesday, June the 26th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. You can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And remember, if you're in an incestuous relationship with your sister, which is something that we don't recommend, by the way, trying to sell her off to a rich and powerful Middle Eastern man will probably make her really mad. So we don't recommend that either.